The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 502 for Monday, May 19th, 2014. Uh, greetings, folks, and welcome. To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We share your questions, we share your tips, we share your cool stuff found. We also answer your questions as best we can. And together, we all learn a little something new each and every time we get together. This episode is sponsored by Barebones, the makers of BB Edit and Yojimbo at barebones.com. And this episode is sponsored by Rage Software and Everweb at uh, everwebapp.com. And they're... Uh, you know, I'm gonna, I want to make sure I have their URL right because I would hate to get that wrong. And I think I have it right, but they get a little extra extra discussion here as we talk about this. I'm, I'm 99% certain it's everwebapp.com. It is everwebapp.com. Uh, coupon code MGG gets you 15% off there. We'll talk a little bit more about both of those during the show here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How you doing today, John F. Braun? Fantastic. And uh, we have all kinds of things to talk about today. So first, uh, I, we will I want to apologize, as we did at the end of last show, for John occasionally slipping into evil Dr. John <laughs> F. Braun mode. Uh, with, I loved it when I was listening to the show to do the show notes. It cracked me up because I didn't know when to expect it. Of it course. Yeah. Dubbed the evil. I don't know why having a much lower voice implies evil. Well, I think it was the warbliness of it that that made it a little more evil for you, John. I don't okay, know. Maybe it was like Darth Vader or something. Yeah, something. I, don't, I don't know, but I'm I'm generally a good guy. I, I know. I mean, that's I'm the rarely thing. Rarely evil. And Come yeah, on, I've seen you slip into it randomly. No, um, I blamed it. <laughs> I blamed it on core audio in Mavericks uh, at the time, which was sort of correct. Uh, it was actually a bug introduced into Audio Hijack Pro when. Uh, when they had to re-engineer the core of what they do for Mavericks because of the, the sandboxing changes and all that in, in Mavericks, um, even though it may not seem like their software changed, uh, the, the core of it had to, to, to accommodate all that stuff. And, um, and it was funny. We finished the show. I grabbed a snippet of that audio. I sent it off to the folks at Rogue Amoeba. And within like 10 minutes, I got an email back and they said, it's your lucky day. We found this bug last week. Uh, we've fixed it. And we're in testing on on the fix right now. Here's a download link to the new uh, to the new build. I was like, oh, perfect. So we're using that build here. Hopefully it it, uh, it works great. And thanks to to those folks for helping us out. And, and those of you that use AHP, um, assuming this testing goes well, they'll they'll release that out for everybody shortly. So and they told me it was okay to say that. So uh, so there's that. Uh, number two, John. I don't know if you saw, but uh, several hours before this podcast uh, started recording, we released the first episode of a new podcast at the Mac Observer called TMO's Daily Observations. And uh, th this, this show grew out of uh, our staff meetings. Frankly, every, every day we have a staff meeting midday Eastern time, uh, and it's where the morning shift and the afternoon shift sort of shake hands and, and, and hand off things. And, but uh, and it's usually a pretty quick meeting. 
Uh, but invariably, there's some great discussions that happen in there. And, uh, you know, often I, I would hang up the phone from these meetings and think, gosh, that, that discussion deserves to be podcast. But I didn't want to podcast our staff meetings. I don't want people in performance mode. I don't want people feeling like there's certain things they can't talk about in a staff meeting because it's going to be released to the world, et cetera. So obviously we can't do that. But it hit me not that long ago that, well, we can just have a meeting after the staff meeting and assemble the people that should be assembled for that particular day's news. We talk through a couple of things through two or three stories, five minutes of peach piece, 15 minute, 20 minute show done. And, uh, and so the first one of those came out today and uh, there will be a second one tomorrow. Jeff Gamut is hosting it for us. And uh, Brian and I were on it today, but it won't always be uh, Brian and I on it with him. He will bring in whoever it is. Wow. That's, that's fit to talk about that story from, uh, from TMO huh. over the last 24 hours. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to talk to this Jeff guy. Maybe I can get in on this. I, I, yeah, yeah, you, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's it's a blast. We record it live just like we do Matt Geek Gab here. And so uh, so we've actually recorded probably 10 of these things as we sort of went through the process of formalizing the format of the show and then getting the, the technique, the techniques down to, to record it and, and making sure Jeff was up to speed and all that, all that stuff in terms of the techniques. He knows how to podcast. He knows what he's doing. But uh, the recording side of it. So what we do here at Mac Geek Gab is a little weird with that we do with a single ender recording, but it allows us to finish the show and immediately release it, which is what we wanted to do with this daily observations too. So, so that's out. You can subscribe it. I don't believe it's in the iTunes store yet, but if you just go to TMO's homepage, it's right there and, and you can, uh, you, you know, you can subscribe the, the RSS feed is there. It's just not in the iTunes store yet, although it might be, they, they're working on it. So that's what we got, John. It's all good stuff. Sweet. Yeah. I, you know what? I, uh, I started talking about, uh, rage software and Everweb and all of that. And, uh, and so I, I want to, I want to finish that discussion, John. First of all, the coupon code with rage software is MGG. I know a lot of you have been asking for this and, uh, and they are our first sponsor of this show. So, uh, MGG gets you 50% off of, uh, of Everweb. Now, Everweb is Rage Software's, I, I, they say iWeb replacement, at least that's how it was presented to me, but really it's like iWeb and then some. And of course, since iWeb's not available, then it's way, it's even better than that, right? Because you can get it and it's under active development. Um, it will import all your old iWeb stuff. It works. It feels like, uh, um, you know, a true Mac app because it is a true Mac app and it, it's got that iWeb feel to it. Uh, they have templates in there that you, you can, you can use it certainly, as I said, to import your old iWeb stuff, but you can also build a website from scratch in there. In fact, that's what most people will probably do, but it's really simple to use it. And it, it's an app that runs on your Mac, uh, has templates in there, mobile web, uh, layouts so that you can easily get things to uh to work not only in desktop browsers but mobile browsers uh they've now added drop down menus into it so you just say i want a drop down menu here you don't need to know how to code any of that in html it just takes care of it for you tell it how you want to populate it uh the folks at rage software have a long history in building search engine optimization software good search engine optimization software not the snake oil stuff but the real stuff that really is just proper building of a website is, is really what it comes down to. Um, and, and so all of that learning decades of that learning uh, are baked into the core of whatever web does all that SEO stuff. It just sort of happens. Uh, everything's 
it, the code that it generates, you don't have to use HTML or CSS or anything. Uh, it does that for you. But if you want to, you certainly can. The code that it generates is all HTML5 and CSS3 compliant and all that. So it works smoothly. Um, you can, when you buy Ever, EverWeb, uh, you can direct publish to your own FTP site if, uh, if you want. That certainly works if you have like a DreamHost account or something else where you, where you just want to publish your your website up. Uh, they also have their own uh, hosting uh, that you can do for ninety nine bucks a year, and then EverWeb will just publish straight to that too. So uh, it, it's very cool if you have like audio files you want to play on your website or video, or uh, you know have an image gallery, or maybe integrate Google Maps or something. They have all these different widgets that you just pile in on your website and it takes care of all that functionality for you without you having to code anything. So, and they've got a, a support, a really, really robust support section on their site where you can learn about all this stuff. They even have an iWeb uh, migration guide. If you've still got all your old iWeb data, you can just migrate that right into EverWeb, no problem. So check it out, everwebapp.com as we decided earlier, that is still correct. And uh, again, the coupon code is MGG and that gets you 15% off. So thanks so much to EverWeb for sponsoring this episode and sponsoring Mac Geek Kevin in general. It's, it's a good thing. Thank you. All right. So, John, uh, I've been, a, well, I've been waiting for us to rediscuss SSDs. Uh, we're not going to, and we're not going to do that except for a little bit. Uh, I, I know that it uh, it's a topic that we could, Based on the number of uh, questions and the feedback that we get in, it's a topic we could spend entire episodes on. We're not going to do that today. We do have some feedback, however, that we need to uh, share just based on the the what we're hearing from you. Kind of want to get some of this out of here. So we're just going to go ahead and do this um, as efficiently as possible. Please keep your questions coming in, but it'll probably be another month or so before we, we revisit this topic here in the show. Uh, we just don't want to let it consume everything we do. Otherwise it become SSD geek. Yeah, but clearly there's an interest out there and, and a lot of you either are using them or getting them or uh, interested. So all that good stuff. The way we're going to do this is this. Um, we'll start with a couple of topics. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, disc repair with SSDs, uh, things you can do to increase your SSD lifetime. And we're going to try and, and uh, a couple other tips and tricks and as well as trim, which is what we'll start with. We're going to try and do this all in uh what about uh, 35 seconds, right, John? No, maybe not. Maybe not quite that fast. So uh, we got things wrong when we talked about trim. In general, uh, it, it, saying that it's a technology that allows the OS and the drive to talk to each other is correct. But when I said that it was something where the drive, where the OS told the drive when to do its garbage collection, that's incorrect. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it's not that at all. Uh, what it does is it tells the drive what can be freed up, right? Because when you delete something, the, uh, the drive doesn't know that the data has been deleted. You just take it out of the directory. So the, the drive still thinks the data is, you know, in that sector, that, that bit on the drive is still in use with trim. The OS tells the drive here's, here's what, you can delete when it's time for you to do your garbage collection. And it's still up to the drive as to when it's going to do that. And, and I, I just want to interject a bit here, Dave. I don't want to slow you down, but I just, uh, for those that have not heard the discussion here, I, I would, uh, I want to encapsulate trim. Trim 
Well, let me let me read let me read Bob's comment. Oh, I see what you're going. Yeah, do this, do this. Well, Go ahead. Trim, trim is a technology that. Uh, so as you said, it's a conversation that the OS has with an SSD, which is a solid state drive. Trim, if I had to encapsulate it, I would say it's a technology that makes write operations happen. Can make future write operations happen faster. Did, that, did I get that right? No, it's true. Yeah, yeah, because it, if an SSD is full, uh, it there's a couple of things that need to happen before it can write your data. So the idea is you want your SSD to sort of be proactive about making sure it frees things up in advance. And in a general sense, that's called garbage collection. And some SSDs, a lot of them actually, have garbage collection built in uh, and may or may not benefit from trim. But first, what I want to do is uh, is read a little bit from Bob's. Uh, email to us here because because there's some some valuable information he says uh file systems tend to allocate storage in 4k pages hfs plus uses 4k and hfs plus is what most of us are going to be using on our macs while ssc ssds will read and write at those sizes they erase much larger blocks sometimes 512 64k to 512k or even higher because of this if you need to overwrite a 4K page, if there are no already zeroed 4K pages, the SSD must take an entirely big block, save all the pages that are still holding good data, zero the block, then rewrite the saved page plus your new data. So you have the wait time of reading all the good data that's next to what you want to write to, erase the entire block, then rewrite everything uh, along with the new stuff that you wanted to have. Without trim, an SSD doesn't know what pages of a file system are being used for data and what pages are on the file system's free list. It has no idea because SSDs don't read HFS plus directories. They just know there's either data here or there's not. That's all. It says uh, the file system does not tell this information to the SSD. So as far as the SSD is concerned, pages on the file system free list are in use data and are not available for reuse. An SSD, uh, many SSDs, including OWCs, uh, and we're going to talk about OWC in a minute, uh, are over-provisioned, meaning they have more capacity than you are aware of. O o OWC tells me they over-provision their SSDs by 9% at least. So that means that if you've got a 100 gig drive from SSD, it actually is 109, maybe even 110 gig drive. And those extra 9 to 10 gigs are actually used as overflow so that you don't run into this issue we just described. So what trim does is it tells the SSD what blocks can be overwritten and the SSD can then go on its own and do this stuff. It says uh, without trim, the SSD depends on over provisioning to keep track, uh, to keep a cache of zeroed pages and to handle the page block replacement when a page or whole block no longer uh, remembers the data written to it. However, since most file systems officially consume the entire advertised SSD size as time goes on, the SSD's unused map has only the over-provisioned pages or blocks available for garbage collection and advanced zeroing. Any large write operation to the file system may quickly exhaust the cached pages and force the SSD to start the above-mentioned read-write uh, operation. Trim is a way for the file system to tell the SSD what pages are on the file system free list so that an SSD can perform garbage collection block zeroing on a lot more pages of the SSD. This gives the SSD a lot more pre-zeroed pages for the next big write operation that comes along. 
So there's that. Uh, and, and, and that speaks kind of more to your point there, John, about making your future right operations work because you've got extra room to just write to. You don't need to do any data shuffling. Uh, and trim just informs the drive of what can be done to, to help that cause. Now, there's two blog posts from Otherworld Computing, maxsales.com. And these folks are great. Uh, they make some of the best SSDs that, that we've found. You've heard us talk about them. Uh, but there's two blog posts. One that we linked to in the last show from December of 2013. Uh, it's a big, long post. I'm not going to read it here. But in a nutshell, what it says is because of this over-provisioning and also because of the type of chips they use and the, the garbage collection that these chips do, trim is largely unnecessary for folks. And probably for most of us would never benefit um, benefit us from turn. And, and so there's no real need to go out of our way to turn trim on. And that's fine. That post is absolutely correct. There is also a post nearly three years old now. Uh, and remember this stuff comes off, comes across real fast. This technology has been developing. There's a post from three years ago, July of 2011, uh, where OWC related a single readers or customer's story about how they felt that enabling trim on their uh, SSD actually made performance worse. Knowing what we know about trim, that's really hard to believe because trim isn't doing anything. It's just providing information to the drive for the drive to do with what it pleases. However, because so many of you are writing to me about this particular post, I felt like we had to talk about it. So this post is uh, not relevant in today's world. I mean, it would be if you had a really old SSD that was third party, maybe, maybe, but probably not even that. OWC actually waited to get into the SSD game until they knew that they could, that they had a chipset and they could over provision their drives in such a way that they didn't need to rely on trim. And they still maintain that to this day. Now those OWC drives will use trim on a windows machine it's just Apple computers that won't enable trim on anything but an Apple drive without something like trim enabler. So that's, that's sort of the, the final word on, on this trim thing. I enable it on all of my drives, including OWC drives, because I know that OWC's chipset supports it as does crucials as does SanDisk's, as does Samsung's right. They all do. And I feel good about using it because it at the very worst it's going to make no difference whatsoever and be unnecessary. And it might just save me. Well, what, what's your problem, Mr. Brown? Okay. Yeah, it's just, oh, it's not going to no, make I, things I, worse. I, I don't have a problem. It, 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 at an infinitesimal level, based on what I understand about how OWC explains how their drive works. Yeah. If you're sending trim commands through a drive that shows no advantage of receiving them, I'm sorry, that, that, that was just... But their drives in, in, actually in the grand scheme of things, it, it it sounds like their position is you don't need to correct to enable it. I and I would suppose it doesn't hurt. Right. It, it can't make things worse. There may be, again, an infinitesimal loss of, you know, you're sending these trim commands that the drive is like, well, yeah, I'm already dealing with this. So, sure. OK, sure. Tell me this extra information and I'll ignore it, but yeah, right. <laughs> At worst, the drive just ignores it. No. And, and, Oda, and I had a conversation with Larry over there this morning uh, oh. about this 
And, and, and did three weeks ago before we recorded Excellent. Matt Geekab 500. But for some reason, this old 2011 post, I asked Larry to take the post down. He won't. And, and I, don't, I don't blame him. Uh, listen, if people are finding this post, it convinces them to buy OWC instead of somebody else. That's good for Larry. It's not wrong. They're sharing one customer's experience. And so sure. fine. You know, I, I don't fault him for leaving it up. I just asked him as a favor if he would take it down or amend it because I'm sick and tired of getting the email from people saying, well, well wait, OWC says it's bad. Well, not really. And if you read the recent stuff, they actually just say what we say may or may not be necessary. So anyway, so that's the trim thing. John, take us on to what happens when you want to do some maintenance on your SSD and please do better than me. Keep it much quicker than I just did. Now, in maintenance, Dave, I, th I think you're speaking of using utilities like one of our favorites, Dave, Drive Genius. That's right. And specifically, so, so I'm going to dig a little bit in, into two levels here. So one is that uh, Drive Genius from our good friends at ProSoft has something called Drive Pulse. This is a utility that will monitor. And this is very important because some people wrote me this saying, oh, my gosh, John, running drive pulse and number one people assumed i have an ssd and I, I normally do not use an ssd not yet i do have a wintech ssd uh that goes in uh my express card 34 slot uh, some people may be like what's that john suffice to say it's an ssd it's a small ssd from good folks at wintech drive pulse as it turns out so drive pulse will monitor and this is very important will monitor your drive for certain conditions now, if you're on a rotational hard drive, it will monitor it for fragmentation, which is very important or somewhat important, or some may argue not important. I think it's important. Um, on a rotational drive, fragmentation is important. As things break up, the drive performance suffers. Sure. The thing is, if you're running drive pulse, and I just found this out today, Dave, because I realized, duh, I do have an SSD. <laughs> when you're running drive pulse on a rotational drive, it will look for fragmentation, It'll do a physical drive check, which is checking the integrity and a few other uh, uh, checking preferences and, and, and some other things. As it turns out, the answer to the question is, should I run Drive Pulse if I have an SSD? The thing is, Drive Pulse is smart enough to not run unnecessary operations because I popped in this SSD. And the only thing, Dave, it's running, which kind of makes sense, is the consistency check. Because even though an SSD doesn't suffer from things like fragmentation, an SSD can certainly suffer from corruption. Oh, sure. Inconsistent data. So hats off to the people at ProSoft. They're smart enough. And and, and I remember this when I did have, a, I reviewed a Samsung SSD uh, uh, a while back. And when I tried to run Drive Genius, uh, they're like, um, yeah, you know, you're trying to defrag an SSD. That's really kind of a stupid thing to do. If you want to do it, we'll, we'll do it. But it, it, it just stop. <laughs> at this point, they may just say, no, don't do this. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. So, John, I have another question for you uh, that listener Bruce kind of hipped us to something that OS 10 does that may or may not be so good for your SSD that you can turn off. Go. Oh, gosh, Bruce. All right. So Bruce had a question here. So Bruce was um, concerned I guess about the lifetime of his SSD. So Bruce asked, and I don't have the question in front of me, but I don't need it, Dave, because my memory is still there. Bruce basically said, uh, time machine is doing local backups. And if, you, and if you guys don't know, um, this is a, 
not entirely recent, but fairly recent feature in that Time Machine can not only back up or create backups to a network drive, but it can create local backups to the drive that you are currently running in your machine. And that's great. And and they take up space, but if they're needed for other things, it'll go away. But the, the question is, can I disable these safely? And to me, Dave, the answer is, I, I personally enable these local time machine backups or snapshots, they're called. And you can invoke them with the, uh, you can invoke them from the command line. You can turn them on and off. And I I've think you can had, you can turn them off in right in time machine preferences. Just go to system preferences, time machine and slide. Uh, right. Uh, oh, I guess you can you can only turn all of time machine off. No, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, and, and, you yeah. know, I've actually had mixed experiences, Dave, on, on some machines like my the last time I was at my parents and, and you know, I, I, I was on the iMac that we recently got my mom or. Uh, or my parents, the mom is the, the primary user, I saw that it was off. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to turn it on. It sure. has a rotational drive. Uh, uh, I think on a fresh machine, it will normally enable them, but machines that you migrate from, it may retain the older settings. But the thing is, is that what's happening is these snapshots, yes, they will be writing data to your local drive. So how do you turn them off? Is it the, just the terminal command? Is that the only way to do it? <sighs> As far as I know, it is yes, and, yeah. I, and I believe it's a you know. So if you go in the terminal, uh, if you want to find out all the options here, uh, just tell them. We, I want. I just want to keep things moving with. The, I want to get past this SSD thing for for a month or so. So I, I think the command is, if I'm not mistaken, it's sudo uh, because you have to run it as root space tmutil space disable local, and I believe that will turn yes. off the the local backups, and it will only do backups when it's connected either over a network or yes. directly to a pre-configured time machine drive. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have that in front of me. That's okay. Yeah, so if you want, if you want a full summary of what TMUtil can do, then yeah, when you're in terminal, say man space TMUtil, and you will see this in addition to a whole bunch of other things. And yes, snapshot is one of the options. Sweet. So, um, so the answer to me is if you want to increase the lifetime, because these backups will consume write cycles. Yep. And that is the Achilles heel of any, SSD. Yeah, we say I, I don't want to get too deep into that, but it it was con, it was a concern of to be a an Achilles heel of most SSDs. But uh, oh. a lot of the thinking nowadays is that we'll never use okay. these drives long enough to actually hit right. that maximum number of writes. So the fact is that they have a limited number of write cycles, but you may never reach that. Right. So Seth asks, uh, he asked us if he could buy an SSD that's faster than the SATA bus on his Mac, uh, it, because most of the SSDs, even the lower priced ones are all capable of doing six gigabits a second versus three gigabits a second, which is what SATA two on most, uh, older Macs can support. And most older Macs will happily run at SATA two, three gigabit per second speeds, even with a SATA 3 6 gigabit per second drive. In fact, it would be a, a reasonable man's assumption that if you take a drive that runs at 6 gigabits and put it in a machine that runs 3, that it would just run 3. And that's how the spec is supposed to work, and it does. In everything except the late 2008 and early 2009 MacBook Pros, and that's MacBook Pro 5,1 and 5,5, they have 3 gigabit buses, but if you, and if you put a 3 gigabit drive in, it goes at three gigabit. However, 
if you put a six gigabit drive in, it goes all the way down to one and a half gigabits. Now, you may not care or even notice because you're still going to get all the benefits of the SSD in terms of latency, and you're still going to be transferring data when you do wind up transferring large chunks of data. You're still going to be transferring it faster than you likely did with your old spindle drive in there. But uh, so it may not matter to you. Uh, however, if it does matter to you, even just emotionally, it matters. Uh, OWC's Mercury Electra drives, uh, I believe, are the ones that will go uh, that are built only to go three gigabits a second. And they're perfect for those computers for exactly that reason. So uh, so let's throw that out there. A good question, Seth. It's it's. <laughs> It's a question you shouldn't have to ask, but for whatever reason, whatever Apple did with that bus, that's that's just how it happened. It makes me angry. Right. I want to squeak that last little droplet of performance out of the bus. If, if it's supposed to go that fast, it should. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, one last thing on uh, uh, one last SSD question for today, and then we'll move on. Uh, listener Scott wrote in and said, you know, I, I heard you talk about taking apart. Uh, a MacBook Pro to put an SSD in. He says that makes sense because it's a portable machine and and you don't want to have some, you know, you don't want to have to deal with some other solution. He said, and I totally get why even on your iMac, you don't want to deal with some external solution because maybe you only have, you know, uh, USB or FireWire is not fast enough or whatever. And he said, but if you don't want to take apart your iMac, go ahead and put an SSD in a Thunderbolt enclosure. And, uh, that way it happens right away. He said he, uh, he just did this and he says he bought a 128 gig Thunderbolt SSD drive for about 200 bucks from, from OWC. They're getting a lot of uh, free press today. Uh, I took it out of the box, plugged it into the Thunderbolt port on the back of my iMac with their included cable, a nice touch. And that is important when you buy anything Thunderbolt, uh, those cables can be about 30 bucks. If you don't, if you don't get one with it, he says I cloned my internal boot drive over in about an hour and booted from it and that's it he's like i'm not going to put it inside there's no reason to it's running perfectly fast over thunderbolt and i'm good to go and uh so that that is absolutely a valid option firewire 800 would even be a mostly valid option for most people uh so so we throw that out there but uh, but thunderbolt certainly is going to get you the speed you want uh out of uh out of your favorite little ssd there so and with that uh we'll move on but i will say that next week uh, I want to talk about some Thunderbolt docks because I've been experimenting with those here, John. And uh, you want to talk about an inexpensive way to get uh, your older, not that old because it's got to have Thunderbolt, but you want to talk about an inexpensive way to get your older Mac USB 3 and things that uh, that you may just have missed out on. It's uh, It can be a very, very cool thing. So we'll talk about those next week. I've been testing a couple of them. We'll talk about what I found. Um, but for now, it's time to move on, John. I think. And uh, well, I'm trying to th- decide where to go here. We're going to go to Terry is what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to skip that. I'm, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go backwards anymore. I want to go forwards, John. And Terry says, uh, I have a lot of apps on my iPhone and they were getting a little out of hand. So this morning I spent nearly two hours organizing them into folders using iTunes on my Mac. I had done the update to iTunes 11.2 but didn't notice that there was another update until it was too late. Well, 1121, well, we'll talk about 1121 in a minute here, but uh, 1121 wouldn't have fixed any of that issue. It says, uh, or she says, sorry. Uh, with that, I mean that after spending all that time organizing, I hit apply and the progress bar in the center of the iTunes window just hung with the waiting for sync for about an hour. And I could see all my hard work was undone. 
And that can happen when you're moving apps around. I find that on the iPhone, when, uh, when you want to move apps and folders and do all that kind of stuff, or even just remove apps from your iPhone, if you're doing it in iTunes, you have to sync without making any changes, sync again without making any changes, then make all your changes, then sync again. And if you don't do those first two syncs, you might run into a situation where everything you just did gets wiped out by the phone because somehow iTunes gets confused and it says, Oh no, the phone has a, a newer layout than I do. So I'm just going to inherit the one from the phone. Cause remember you're not saying there's no way in iTunes to say, take what I have done in iTunes and make it on the phone. You can only say sync. And so if iTunes thinks that the phone's data is newer, it will inherit that uh, and undo all of your hard work. Terry has a question though. A second question says, uh, why do I have a folder called music inside of my iTunes media folder and another separate folder outside the iTunes media folder called iTunes music? This latter folder has a lot more stuff in it. In fact, it appears to have all my music, video and other files that I enjoy in iTunes. The other one, the one inside the iTunes media folder has many fewer folders and doesn't have all the artists that are in the other one. So do I need this music folder? Why is it there? Several iterations ago, I think it started with iTunes 10. Apple moved from using iTunes Music uh, as its repository for all of your media to a one step removed iTunes media folder, which then breaks things out into music, TV shows, movies, etc. Podcasts, you know, yet another subfolder there. If you had been using, if your iTunes library is older than iTunes 10, and I believe it was iTunes 10 when this uh, came into being, then you will potentially wind up with this unless you consolidate your library. And the way you do this, and we've talked about it before, but it is, it, it, you need to be careful. Go to iTunes, go to preferences, go to advanced. Uh, in there, there's going to be two boxes. One, keep iTunes media folder organized and copy files to iTunes media folder when adding to library. Check them both. Then hit OK. Go to the file menu, go to organize library, and if available, check both boxes there. Uh, one of them may be grayed out. The way, the way it works, there's one for consolidate files, and there's one for reorganize the files in the folder iTunes Music. And that, that second one, if, if you can check it, will kind of do that transition for you. In your case, Terry, since you've got both, it may not. But, uh, but once you hit OK, then it's going to start copying files from wherever they were into this uh, new iTunes media slash music slash podcast slash whatever folders. Once that's finished, you want to spot check this. You probably it's, it's going to have done copies. It may do moves again. If that second box can be checked, it will move things around. However, most in your case, I think it's just going to do copies. So you have to be really careful that you don't miss out and, and, uh, and leave a bunch of duplicates on your hard drive. Check, look in your iTunes music folder, your, the old one, and see if you've got, you know, find any song in there. Then go into iTunes itself, find that song in iTunes, do a get info on the song itself, and look at the little bottom, the, the bottom of the uh, initial window that you get when you get a, a get info window there will show you uh, where that file is located. It lists where, and then it shows you hard drive users, and it digs you down and down and down. And if you 
Look carefully. You can see whether it's in the iTunes music folder or in the iTunes media folder. And if it has moved that into the iTunes media folder, then you can safely delete your music. I would back up everything beforehand anyway, because listen, this is your entire music library you're talking about. But that that should solve that for you. I think. Right, John? Hope so. Did you see this iTunes thing last week? Oh, the train wreck? <sighs> yeah. You know, well, it, it, to me, it was very interesting. So hats off to you, Dave. So, uh, so you're talking about the, well, you know, I got mixed feelings about it. So, so you're talking about the, the hidden folder issue. Yeah. The bug which clearly was because a, it, I was made aware of it. So I run something, uh, is it tunnel blick? It's called. Okay. I think it's called tunnel blick. It's a, uh, open VPN client for the Mac. And all of a sudden after, so number one, most of us received an update saying, Hey, there's a, a new Mac OS update and there's a new iTunes update. You want to apply them? And it's like, sure. And then yeah. all of a sudden some people now in my case, they, hang on. I, whoa, whoa, whoa. About- I, I can't let you do this to you're leaving everybody hanging. So this first iTunes update is because right. you keep detracting this. Anyway, uh, the, the iTunes update that came out on Thursday hid everyone's users folder and everyone's users shared folder. It also changed the permissions on both of those to be world writable. Uh, the initial assumption that everybody made was that OS 1093, like you said, they came out pretty much together. One actually did come out before the other uh, 1093 came out first and then iTunes was a little while later, but most of us got them and installed them uh, on our machines at the same time. And all assumed that this high hidden, uh, this, this, this user's folder going away was of course 1093 because why would an iTunes update do this exactly <laughs> right and, you know correlation and, is not causation exactly remember this phrase right and because most people said it was 1073 because 1093. it sounded like an OS or, or I'm sorry yeah. yeah it sounded like an OS thing not an iTunes thing of course it did why would iTunes change permissions I mean that's it's crazy it, and that's that's my big concern. So we did some digging because we realized some people didn't have this problem and yet they had 1093. And so we did some isolation testing in here uh, at TMO Towers and we found that, in fact, it was a combination of having iTunes 11.2 and find my Mac on. And then Friday night, Apple released iTunes 11.2.1, which rest, which undid whatever this is. But my problem with this, we talked about this actually during the TMO Daily Observations podcast today, John. Do you like that second plug there for it? Uh, is that Good. twice in 48 hours, Apple has issued iTunes updates that muck about with things that iTunes should never muck about with. Now, granted, the second one was released to undo the first one, but I, I still think that's bad. They should have released a security update that said, we're just going to go ahead and wipe that out. Sorry about that. It should not have been part of a, a, another iTunes update to undo this. They should have released iTunes 11.2.1 to not do this to people's systems and, and get rid of iTunes 11.2 from their servers. But anybody that had it, I just don't like the idea of iTunes doing things that really only OS updates should do. And even right. then they shouldn't, it shouldn't have been done, right? It was a bug, but Man, I don't know. I, I and it, also it bothers me. In in the in the notes for the updates, they never touched upon the reason for the update. I, I don't believe there was yeah, a did. line. Exp- 
Oh, they did. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. They, no, it, it it they did, but it was the Mac App Store update uh, did not have that in it. But uh, but the the knowledge base article on their on their website did have that um, in it. And in fact, they released uh, knowledge base article TS five four three four John that that basically says the users folder isn't visible after updating to iTunes 11 2 update to iTunes 11 2 1. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it, little, it, it, it concerns me. I think in my mind, because I didn't listen to the inaugural edition of the podcast. Sure. In my mind, it concerns me because it, it almost indicates to me that there is a lack of testing of, and, and you guys may have touched on this, a lack of testing of software updates. Now you can't possibly in the digital age test for everything, but for them to release this without having a reference system saying, Hey, is anything major changed? Like, did we muck with the permissions on a, you know, major what you is, know, folder? The most people would notice this. Uh, and you know, Dave, I'm a software guy. The thing is, again, you can't test for everything, right? but uh, I'm, I'm, and certainly they have a system in place that allows them to track who made what change and why. Sure. And either somebody gets reprimanded or fires or procedures get changed, but how this could happen, because it's a pretty major change. Now, my argument, actually, when I saw it, it's like, well, why do you need to be mucking about there? Most users. That's where the no conversation need. needs to be. What in the right. heck is iTunes doing? That it needs to, like, you know, here's the thing, though. There's a trust factor. When I plug in my password into the mm. authentication dialogue, I'm I'm offering the entire trust of my whole system to that installer, right? Because I'm giving my installer root access on my computer. It can do anything, and I don't get to see what it does. So it's no wonder everybody assumed 10.9.3 did this, because heavens, iTunes would never do that. It's a freaking application. What's going to happen when they update pages? Is it going to, you know, hide my right. uh, my pictures folder? I mean, who knows? I, that's the that's and, my and problem. One could argue at the OS level. They said, you know what? Most people like library don't need to see this. And I, I, I can sure. understand that argument. A absolutely. That most people, because when you think about it, and actually, this was my argument on the Twitters and other things. I'm like, how many people until they knew this happened really cared about what was in their users well there's a lot of things that put things in users shared i i, I understand right yeah but 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 for i i would say 99 i don't know 95 percent if, if you people, run parallels or it, vmware it, it, okay, you, okay. users shared yeah. is is your thing right. yeah okay I, I get it but i would say most people if they didn't know it happened wouldn't notice it for sure. a while for a while until they went there yeah no i wouldn't have noticed it if i hadn't heard about it that's absolutely true absolutely true but then, yeah, I don't know. Rant so off. we, yeah, right. Rant off. We're good. We're good. We got it out of our systems. All right. Let me, uh, I, let me, let me thank Barebones here because uh, they've been a sponsor of Mac Geek Cab for a very long time, and they are our second sponsor for this episode. Barebones.com. These folks make BB Edit, which is the king of all text editors on the Mac. I, I mean, this thing, and it's it's great. I, I know it's it's been fifty bucks for a while now, um, which is awesome because it used to be two hundred bucks and. Uh, and I'm so stoked about it because it brings it in the reach of so many more people. If you were a, 
a high-end programmer, the 200 bucks was a no-brainer for you. But now, uh, and for the past year or so, maybe it's even been two years, uh, at 50 bucks, it puts it in the, the, you know, the realm of, of anyone. And it does so much. It, it is certainly built for you as a programmer. Again, not just as a, you know, if you're doing C Sharp or Objective-C or uh, Java, it certainly can handle all that. And as soon as it sees what language uh, you're writing in, it starts highlighting things on the screen for you in a very subtle way. It doesn't get in the way of coding. It makes it better. In fact, uh, it's nice to have an app that's written by programmers as all apps are for programming because they use it themselves, right? So they don't make this thing ugly. They make this thing gorgeous and it's, it's subtle, simple. And uh, as soon as it notices it, it, it kind of does some of these things and does some formatting and, uh, but it doesn't change your file. It just changes the way it looks on the screen a little bit enough to really make it stand out. But it also, this, it, yes, it works with all these, these kind of high, high end languages, but it also works with HTML. So if you've got a website and you need to, you know, a lot of times, if you want to look at the source code for a website, Safari can be kind of a mess unless you're using the inspector and then that gets even weird, but you can just copy that source code out of Firefox or Safari, whatever, and paste it into a document and BB it. And as soon as you save it as an HTML file, it starts, you know, making things look a little prettier and it'll find the, you know, tags. So if you want to see where the beginning of your head and end sections are, it'll make that so easy for you. Cause it's, it's intelligent. It knows about these, these things in the language. So it's really cool from that standpoint, JavaScript, all that stuff. It, it knows all about it. It knows about everything. It's just how it works. And then there's other cool things you can do with it. You can sort text. I know it sounds crazy, but how many times have you wanted to sort a list of things and you think, well, how do I go about doing that? You don't have to think if you have BB edit, you just launch BB edit, paste the text into an open document, go to the, uh, I think it's the text menu and choose sort lines done. Now you've got your sorted thing. You want a word count, paste it in, look at the bottom, it tells you how many words, how many characters, how many lines you have. Good to go. It, it's just simple. That sort of stuff. And one thing I use it for all the time, if you have two files, especially two versions of a, a file, uh, I do this when Apple pushes out new legal notices. Like, you know, they say we've updated our iTunes terms of service. Well, I save the old one uh, and I save the new one too. And I bring them both into BB edit and uh, in two separate documents. And I go to the search menu and I say, compare two frontmost documents and boom, it shows me, it brings up this like three paned thing, one document on the left, one document on the right. And then a window at the bottom that shows me only the lines that have changed. And I can click on that and it brings both documents to those lines and I can compare and see, Oh, I see what they changed here. Really handy. A it's really handy because you know, we're all agreeing to this anyway. And B, you know, we try to keep on top of this stuff for you when, whenever there's anything we like to tell you. And that's how, uh, that's how we do it. So, uh, so check it out. BB edit. You can download a free trial at barebones.com. And thank you very much to them for, uh, for continually being sponsors of Mac geek. It is awesome. We're very lucky to uh, to have such great folks helping helping support what we do here in addition to all of you great listeners all right john i did terry's question why don't you do terry's question <laughs> ah the other terry mm -hmm. okay so um terry has a question about mail rules now mail app is one of our favorite applications dave right i like mail because it's so extensible you can do so many different things with it add-ons and all that stuff but it's a little quirky sometimes but that's okay. And and here was one of the quirks that Terry wrote in about. So so Terry at a very high level had a workflow. Um 
and has to do with male rules. Now, you may, you may be asking yourself, what are male rules, John and Dave? And I'm going to tell you, if you go into, ma- and some may use male and never use rules, but I'm going to tell you what they are. So if you go into mail and you go to preferences, you're going to see a whole bunch of icons on the top there and you're going to see rules. Well, you may not know this, but you can create rules that will do hopefully smart things based on the contents of emails that are coming into your various email accounts. It's cool. It's cool. It's very cool. And I use it almost exclusively to look at who sent it and if they sent it and if it matches a rule to put it into a particular folder and it helps me organize things and i think for the most part that's what most people do with their rules as they say hey is it from this person oh okay well put it in this folder and it helps you organize your life that's Otherwise, right it'd be chaos but if you get a lot of rules going john uh and I'm, I'm, I'm going to move you along here, right? To, well, to ask Terry, Terry's here. question. So, well, but so, if you get a lot of rules going, what happens, right? How do I know which rule is going to be run when? And especially, how do I troubleshoot it when my rules aren't executing in the order I thought they would? And I'm going to give you two, a number of answers here. Awesome. So number one, Dave, um, we got this really smart guy on our staff here, John Martellaro, and he yeah. wrote an article, which I referred to, and we're going to put it in our chat room and link to it. But he wrote an article that really helped me out, not only in the past, but also for this question, because I wanted to brush up on how rules worked. And so um, John's article, and it's called Rules for Creating Rules. <laughs> of course it is. In Apple's mail app. Yeah. So thank you, John. And and even though he wrote it in 2010, it's still very timely and it still applies. So the thing is, rules, it may not be immediately obvious how rules work. So what happens is that you can define one or more rules. Now, the first question may be, well, what happens here? You know, if one rule is executed and then another one. So, so you may have one or more rules. Sure. The first question is, if I have a list of rules, what happens? Well, instinctually you may assume that they're executed in order and that is correct okay but then this is where it gets a little less instinctual okay in that rules may or may not stop executing based on what they are doing and john points this out and i will point this out as well because this is typically my rules here so the thing is if you have a rule and it executes successfully, and it moves something to another mailbox, everything stops. Because the rules, it, it's really important, actually. That makes sense. I didn't realize that. Because mail rules only act on things that are in the inbox. And once they have left the inbox, they don't act anymore. Is that right? Uh, not entirely. So the thing okay. is... Uh, Again, what I said, so if a rule is executed and the rule results in you moving something right. somewhere else, all future rules are ignored. Because, because the message isn't in the inbox for them to see. Because you've completed, you've accomplished your mission. The well, no, that, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that because it, you may not have accomplished your mission. Right. You've just moved it out of, out of the sight of any other rules. Correct, but based on on the article, yeah, the 
processing of rules stop when an action moves a message yeah. to a named mailbox. Yeah. Which is which is what I'm saying here is that okay. because rules are only inbox rules, they rules will not act upon messages. If you have some filtering that happens at your mail server and it comes in to a different right. mailbox, no rules will apply to it because rules only apply to things in the inbox. Right. Yeah. So that makes sense. Now, I never case, thought about it that way. Okay. That makes sense. Now, yeah. now, in the case of Terry, what, what Terry was doing is Terry was defining rules that were not. As far as I could tell, so I didn't get the details of the rules, but Terry was executing rules that were not moving things to other mailboxes. Sure. I think they were applying labels or colors to, right. to messages. And okay. because they were not moving things to another mailbox, the execution would continue. And I think that was uh, what happened in his case because sure. Terry wrote in and said, all right, I got a problem here. So, so I have... A whole bunch of rules, some for one situation, some for another situation. And the problem is, for this special situation, it's falling through and executing the later rule. Right, because a, a message would, would fall in two categories. And so it's Correct. actually the later one that's taking precedence because it's, it's, it, it evaluates the first one first. And then the second one, second, and the right. third one, third. Yeah, and it makes because sense. the rule was not moving something to another mailbox, the subsequent rules would also be executed. And right. that was the problem. But there's a magic and fix for that, John. Yes, it is. So when you are defining a rule, and John also wisely in his article states this as well. Sure. Is when you're defining a rule. So normally you can say in a rule, okay, well, do this and this and that. But uh, what we're going to call the actions in a rule. One thing that you can do is when you define a rule, you can define, uh, so there are two parts. So one is you can say, if whatever is the first part of the rule, and those are the conditions, and then you say, what happens if that thing happens? Sure. And you can say, perform the following actions. And here's the thing, you can define multiple actions. You can say, you know, make this a certain color or move this. There's so many things. Well, you but mark it as red. Them, yeah, whatever. Yep. Here's the key. If you have a rule where if it's satisfied, you don't want anything else to happen, then the final action should be stop evaluating rules. And it will not evaluate anymore, even if the message remains Correct. in the inbox. Oh, that's so what happened in Terry's case is it was falling. Th so it, was, it sure. was successfully meeting the conditions of multiple rules. And the problem is, yeah. uh, as far as I can see, without seeing them, it was falling through and saying, oh, OK, well, I'll do this. And then, oh, well, I'll do this, too. So it was it was doing exactly as it was told, but not as was uh, expected <laughs> by the user. Or as, or as I or as I put it. Uh, exactly what I asked for, but not what I want. Hey, there you go. Much That's much more poetic. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's and, right. And, and and so he got back to us and basically said, once I put in this ignore future rules rule or action, I'm sorry, it's called an action. Yeah. Once he put that in there, everything works swimmingly. Yeah. Stop so evaluating rules. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's... that makes sense. So in a nutshell, mail rules are executed in order. Uh, they will continue to be executed as long as the message is in only and as long as the message is in the inbox uh, or until it met, it meets the criteria for one rule. And that rule includes a stop evaluating rules action as its final action. 
I think that's it. And the and the rule doesn't move. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. If, if it remains in the inbox, right. yeah, yeah, got it. Sweet. I didn't. It was the inbox thing was new to me. I I never. I mean, it make intuitively it makes sense based on what I've seen and dealt with. But I it it yeah, that's right. good. That's good. Now the final thing I offered him, and we will put it in our you know lovingly handcrafted show notes. But I did find this years ago, and this is something that was written even earlier back in '03. Okay, but it's still applicable. If you want to debug your uh, mail rules, one of the things you can do is when a rule is executed, you can run an Apple script. Well, hey, Mac OS X hints from way, way back has an Apple script that will tell you when a rule has been executed. This is outstanding because normally you can't tell when a rule has been uh. executed. You're, it, it's just kind of you watch what happens and it could be a painful debugging process, right, Dave? Sure. Oh, yeah. Whereas if you had an Apple script saying, hi, rule, whatever was Success. just run. Right. Yeah. This can be much more effective in your debugging your role. So, so, so we're going to link to that as well. And, you know, it's a, I mean, it, it actually points to the timeliness of Apple script. Yeah. You know, I never thought about still that works because I, 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 I tried it recently and it still seems to work. It says, Hey dude, rule, whatever just ran. And it's like, Oh, well, that's good to know. Because at first, I uh, sure. when I looked at Terry's question, I was questioning. I'm like, you know, I'm not sure if your initial rule is running. Mm. So here's how you can tell if the rule, because you can write a rule. And the thing is, normally you have no idea if it's run or not. Yeah. If you bork the criteria, it, you don't know. It just never runs or or maybe it does. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. you For debugging a lot, what I'll do is, you know, if I if I have an if clause or whatever, a conditional I'll uh, I'll put something in that that you know spits out like a little dialogue that says we're here you know made it kind of thing it's like okay good but with mail rules there's no built-in functionality for that kind of uh you know apparent debugging but this this little hint that yeah. does it that's now awesome you're kind of dri- driving blind yeah you drive blind it already well, yeah paste it again <laughs> sweet all right uh, I will say hi uh since you mentioned the chat room and because they're here uh to everyone at MacGeekab.com slash stream. Uh, many of you uh, never see the stream and that's okay. Uh, we broadcast the stream live when we record the show and also have a chat room at MacGeekab.com slash stream where you can chat with us, although we're doing the show. Uh, mostly you chat with each other, but uh, but John and I do occasionally pop in. And of course, we, we also try to drop in the uh, the links there as well as into the show notes. And and I will say that the show notes are are lovingly handcrafted uh, John does a final pass on them once the show has been published, but the, uh, the, the first pass of them is done actually by many of your listening brethren. Uh, it's awesome. Having, having you folks help out with, with all of that. That's great. All right. While we're on the mail thing, John, we'll go to, uh, we'll go from Terry and Terry. We can't stay on that. So we'll go to, uh, to Larry and Larry writes, I'm helping a colleague, uh, who complains that she receives two of each incoming mail message. I checked and it's because she has both IMAP and pop accounts set up for the same mailbox. The duplicate message thing would be solved by making the pop account inactive, but then she would lose all the messages that came in via pop that are sitting in her inbox in her sent in her drafts, etc. Is that correct? And the answer is yes. If you delete the pop account, everything on your Mac in the in sent drafts and trash, if you care uh, are deleted from your Mac 
and may or may not still be on the server, likely are not on the server because typically that's how pop works uh, in its default configuration. It deletes something from the server once it pulls it down, but, but that's only the inbox certainly sent and, uh, and drafts and trash are only on your Mac again, unless you've got some funky mail configuration. So Larry says is the correct solution to first go in and prune out all of the duplicate emails from uh, the two mailboxes. When I'm pruning, it would be great to know which messages are already on the IMAP server because we'd leave those intact. Yeah, then you drag the survivors that came in via pop uh, into folders created on the IMAP server. Final step would be to disable and then delete the pop account. Is that right? And the answer is yes. Un unfortunately, there's no way that I know of to go through and find duplicates in any one mailbox. Um, depending on the mail server, and this would be worth testing, uh, some IMAP servers are smart, and if they see the same message come back in, ostensibly these messages will still have the same uh, message ID, which is unique to every email ever, right? So uh, if they see the same one come back into the inbox, they may, the, the server may say, oh, you know what? I don't need another copy of that that you just put here, So, but we're good, you know, and it might leave it. If that's the case, it's great. And the way to test that would be to find one that's duplicated and just move it in mail, move it from the pop mailbox to the IMAP mailbox and see what happens. See if it leaves the pop mailbox and whether one or two of them uh, appear in IMAP. If you have to do this manually, uh, what I would do is first, I would move everything from the pop server to IMAP. That way, not only is it saved on your Mac, it's saved on the server and you're good to go. Then yes, you will have duplicates uh, in your inbox on the IMAP server, and at that point, if 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 the server is not smart enough to weed out the duplicates automatically, which again it might be, but uh, but if it's not, then you'll have duplicates sort by either from or subject. Well, frankly, it doesn't matter what you sort by; there's still going to be duplicates of each other, so you should find them, and then just go through and painstakingly, as it might be, highlight one at a time. Uh, the one of each of the duplicates. Don't highlight both. Highlight one and then delete and uh, and that should get you there. But yeah, you don't want to be running both pop and IMAP on the same Mac in the same mail client to the same mail server. So that's how I do that. And if you're, if you're migrating from pop to IMAP, that's the same. You do actually, there is that one instance where you do want to have both running because if you're, you're running as pop and you want to migrate to IMAP, set them both up move all your mail messages from pop to IMAP, let that finish uploading to the server. And you can test that in mail uh, by going to the window menu and going to activity. I apologize for pointing you to this because for those of you that like to obsess over what your Mac's doing, you will never close this mail activity window. Uh, I always have it up on mine, but it's handy because it lets you know what mail's doing in the background, but that in this particular operation, that would, that would work. And, uh, and you know, once you get it all migrated over, then you turn off the pop account. You said, hmm, though, John, what did I get wrong? Uh, no, nothing wrong. Okay. <laughs> Just I say, hmm, doesn't mean you're hmm. wrong, Dave. I mean, sometimes you are wrong. Right. <laughs> as, as am I. Yeah. But no, I, I'm just thinking back to when I migrated my mom, uh, so when she, uh, her parents, yep. when, when they got the iMac, um, and they had been on a pop account. And then all of a sudden I discovered that Yahoo was offering a free IMAP account. And I think the sequence here is that it's imperative that you do not get rid of the pop account until you're absolutely sure that you've retrieved all that data. And that's what I did in this case. So I'm like, oh, look, 
IMAP uh, Yahoo is available. Oh, look, they're missing something. And I think the, the, the most important things were the scent. So the items that were stored on the POP server or under the POP account, there were never going to be migrated to the IMAP account because they weren't there. Huh. They were local. And I don't know if I'm explaining that right. I, I, I think you, you grok what I'm saying, but the thing is, you have to be really, really sure before you obliterate the pop account that all of that data has been brought over. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. As you said, that duplicates may exist and that, that that's annoying. But to me, what's more annoying is that you nuke your pop account and you lose everything because the nature of pop is that it's, for the most part, data taken from the server to the local computer. And that's the only place it exists. Whereas with IMAP, of course, it exists on the server. So even if you destroy everything, it's still on the server. So, right. no, I'm just thinking back again when I did that migration and I was very careful. I'm like, okay, I'm, until everything's copied over to IMAP from the pop account, I, I'm, yeah, uh, uh, I, I was just extremely careful. Sure. So that's, that's all I have to add to that. Yeah, sure. No, it makes sense. That's good. All right. Um, I think we have time for one more. So we're going to, we're going to head to George here and, uh, Cause it, it's a question that comes up occasionally and, uh, and it's good. So George writes, if I set up my airport express to hook up my USB printer so that I can use it wirelessly, will this affect my bandwidth on the extreme? Uh, it only affect if it only affect, and he's asking because the printer, uh, the airport express is going to be running at 802.11 G, I believe in his case, and his extreme is running at 802.11 N. It says if, if it only affects it during printing, then that's not a big deal. And I will, as I will only use it occasionally, hopefully my printer will be compatible. I currently have my extreme set up in bridge mode. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the question is essentially using the, it, to abstract it out using any 802.11 G client, with an 802.11n or 802.11ac network will using the slower client slow down the faster stuff. Um, and, and the answer is that it might George, but in, in general, it will only, even if it's going to affect it, it will only do so while the data is transmitting. Um, there's a great explanation posted in an Apple discussion board that, that I'll read and then we can, we can discuss it, discuss it, John, but it was, it was so it, it encapsulated. It says on a mixed mode network, i.e. backwards compatible devices capable of collect connecting at 802.11 N will do so while devices able to connect at G will also do so. Uh, so long as only one device is communicating with the router at a time, things should be fine. The problem arises with simultaneous communication situations. While the details are perhaps overly technical, the bottom line is that a number of network gymnastics in, ensue to ensure that both devices can communicate in a stable manner without data loss, etc. The real world implications of this can result in as much as 30% drop in speed compared to the theoretical maximum, but that tends to be extreme. Uh, and only happens when one device is making constant requests for data, such as streaming. Um, so there you go. That that's that's it in a nutshell. Without without all the technical uh, background there, that it it only is going to impact it when data is being passed. Now, certainly when you're printing, some data is being passed very quickly. 
And occasionally there's going to be data passed even when nothing's happening, just as the two devices sort of stay in sync with each other. But for the most part, if all the data that's passing across that link is, is for the printer, unless you're printing all day, every day, I don't think you're going to notice any problems whatsoever. What do you think, John? I think I agree with your assessment. Okay. That, <laughs> yeah. For, for the most part, wireless networks will operate as fast as they can. And if there's a, you know, kind of slower, <laughs> slower device, they'll accommodate it, but it's not going to drag everything down all the time. Right. Right. It, it may certainly bring it down a bit, but yeah. 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 No, it's just kind of the magic of uh, well, RF is, as we've discussed, RF is just black magic anyways. I mean, who knows what the heck is going on? Well, that's, you know, that's the thing. We worry about things like this. And, and there is a, the potential for a not insignificant slowdown. Right. But I think this is probably would I would file this under least of my worries. Right. When it comes to Wi-Fi, unless I've got. Unless I'm living in a, you know, uh, some sort of shielded box where nothing else can get in or out and I don't have anything else even in the box that's going to get in the way uh, or the box itself is going to echo signals around and screw things up. I, I just, you know, again, unless you're streaming something constantly where right. that's going to be a problem, I, it, it, there's other there's other things to, to worry about in terms of making your Wi-Fi performance better. The first of which is just get a better router. Always just get okay. a better router. All right. In my case, Dave, I recently, several months ago. So the thing is, I am pure 802.11n right now. Okay. As you may recall, right. for those who have listened for a while, you may know that the, the one lagging device that I had was my TiVo 802.11g adapter. Right. Other than that, every other device in my household is 802.11n. And to me, that, that certainly, I, I think created a drag so eventually yeah. i got well, again uh, potential it, maybe it wasn't the end of the world but it, it, it annoyed me sure. okay? oh I'm that like, i get oh man nope. i'm like i got one g device and everybody else's end because i don't want this g device Absolutely. it has the potential right. to ruin everything right. the thing is eventually i got an 802.11 n adapter for my tivo and now everything on my network is at least 802.11 n and that makes me happier whether whether it matters is irrelevant that's right it doesn't (laughs) no it's not irrelevant because it totally matters yeah it totally matters that i have a pure network right it is pure it's all n or better yeah so i want to ask you because i have one of my tivos um i think there's something wonky about the ethernet port on it because i was running power line to it and it would never use the ethernet on my tivo yeah, well, if you want to sell me oh, your no, TiVo's no. Ethernet I'm, I'm port. I'm sorry, I am. No, actually, I am. Right. Oh, you are. Because the, that because the 802N adapter is not a USB device, but it is an Ethernet device. Actually, so it's just a bridge. It's a little, actually, it's a little baby access point, whereas yeah, right. I believe the USB-G adapter, and hey, if anybody wants... It's not an access point. Tivo, it's a client. It's a client, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Whereas, uh, And if anybody wants a 802.11G TiVo adapter... Uh, send me an email sure. no i got one sure i'll give you i'll give you a good price for it yeah i've got it i've got a g adapter but my issue is that my i was using power line with the ethernet port and it would constantly go mm. offline it, it mean it would it would work when it wanted to work like if it needed to go online and download show data works fine but if i wanted really? to go and browse it from uh, over the network from another tivo 
I could never get in reliably. And, uh, and I, I, I thought, well, maybe there's some weird well, power that's... line thing, but it's not, it's that, that I had, is this on your series three? It is. Uh, but well, I, I just think a hundred, that's probably a hundred. Is that a gigabit or a hundred? It's a hundred, but okay. it didn't matter. It, it would say that it was in sync. And I, it, I took power line out of the equation just in case that was, you know, causing some wonkiness. I plugged straight ethernet cables in. Didn't matter. Um, that ethernet port will not always respond, at least not the way I need it to. So I have to use the USB port. So I use, I have to use the 802.11G really? adapter okay. with that one. Yeah. Because I got to say the end adapter and the ethernet port, I've gotten, I definitely oh, no. better throughput. So of course, I, no, I I'm sure. Wonky. No, I think my, yours is wonky. Yeah. It's just a bad ethernet port or a, a iffy ethernet port. And I have problems mm-hmm. with those because my iMac, the ethernet port on my iMac in my office, John, um, you know, it's a gigabit ethernet port, except that at some point in the last three or four months, it doesn't connect at gigabit anymore. I only realized it a few weeks ago. Uh, it connects at a hundred. That's it. Yeah. Yep. And so that's why next week we're going to talk about Thunderbolt docks, because one of the things you get with the Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt. dock is a it's gigabit huge, ethernet port. Huge speed, potentially yeah. huge speed. So, right. Yeah, because Thunderbolt doesn't imply a speed, does it? No, it implies expandability. Oh well, sure. Yeah, yeah it's a bus, right? It's a bus talking to another bus. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sorry to hear that your your throughput is is it's not anymore. Not optimal, Dave. Not with a Thunderbolt uh, dock on my on I'm, my iMac. I'm I'm still rocking my TiVo Series Three. You know how I love old hardware, whether it be mechanical. Sure. But no, I'm still rocking it. it I'm, I'm still very happy. Even though TiVo, I know, has... Do you have the Romeo? No, we have a Premiere. Premier. You got the Premiere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have, and we still second. have the three. Yeah, we have the three downstairs. You do have the three. We still have... Yeah, well, that's why I'm talking about have it. Have you replaced the hard drive in that? No. no. You better do. No. That's at least eight years old now. That uh, that's that right. That hard drive's about to roll. That's right. Yeah. I did that. Uh, yeah, you're <laughs> you probably right. The price of the original size hard drive was more expensive than one that was twice right. the size. <laughs> two fifty. Yeah, you're probably and I right. I had to pay more for the two fifty than the five hundred, and even the five hundred is way more space than I ever need for for the amount of TV I watch. But anyways, Dave, we don't want to talk about watching TV. We want to talk about how you can get in touch with us. I highly recommend. I want everybody that we've been having so much fun in the Google plus group. So come over. We'll put a link in the show notes to the Mac geek Gab Google plus community. It's awesome. You folks are amazing because somebody will ask a question. And before I can get into the group, there's already not one, but like three answers and a discussion happening, which is of course, exactly what we've always wanted. We tried it with Facebook. We tried it with forums, failed, failed Google plus total success. So uh, you, you have in, inspired me to keep using Google Plus. It mm. works. It really works well. Awesome. Yeah, you got to stop by. You you really I are missing notifi- out. I, I get notifications. I know you. No, I, but well, you're my missing only out. Fish shake, Dave, is notifications on G Plus are not quite as nice as Facebook. I'm just saying. Agreed. Oh, I absolutely. Or the I UI of either, or yeah. I haven't figured them out. The UI of the iPhone is horrible for managing a page and all that, but it's so great. I do like for this. the iPad app. The actually the it's better. Plus iPad app yeah, is better. not that bad. Yeah. But how else can you get in touch with us, Dave? Feedback. I'm asking you. You can email feedback at macgeekab.com. 
And if I heard my friend correctly, it's feedback at MackieCab.com. Absolutely. Feedback at MackieCab.com. And if you want to support the show directly, uh, you can do so and you can join our premium membership. We really uh, appreciate all of you who continue to be members of our premium program, supporting what we do here. It's awesome. Check it out. MacGeekab.com is where you can get all the details. And, uh, and of course, uh, those of you that are premium supporters get the added benefit of uh, being able to email our premium at MacGeekab.com address, which does get some priority. Although we try and usually succeed at getting through every question that comes into any Avenue that, uh, that we can be made aware of. So that's how that works. John, I want to, uh, I want to thank you because now we've done, I think, uh, no, I, I don't know. I'll say it later. Um, I just want to thank you because, you know, we get to do the show every week and it's awesome. And, uh, it's, that's you and our <laughs> listeners and it's awesome. It's great. Our sponsors. And we're, and we're still friends and we're still, yeah. After despite, nine years, you know, despite we're coming up June, despite you, I know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, despite me being me. June 13th <laughs> is when this show will hit its ninth anniversary. Our birthday. Our birthday. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Oh, we need a cake. Yeah. That, there you go. Yeah. We Get a geek a cake. Oh, we need a Mac Geek App cake. There you uh, go. Oh. Especially next year. For number 10, we got to do something special. So oh, I thought it was already 10. No, this will be nine. This will be Nearly nine. 10. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, and you can call us, of course, at 206-666-GEEK, which John is 4335. And in addition to thanking uh, everybody that I already thanked, including you, John, uh, I want to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast and also GetAppler.com. Michael converts this show to AAC and adds all those chapters for you, which is just awesome. Thank you, Michael. And Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. Those folks provide all the bandwidth to get from us to you. Rage Software with coupon code MGG. iFixit.com. Squarespace with coupon code MGG. The folks at Smile Software. That's Smile Software. It's Smile. SmileSoftware.com. Gazelle to sell off all your old stuff. Barebones.com. All of our great sponsors. Thanks for doing what you do and continuing to support us. John. We will be back on Sunday next week. We're finally back to the Sunday morning slot, I think. Who knows? But I think that's what it's supposed to be. John, before we go, got any advice for him? I believe I do, Dave. I think the advice is don't get caught. Made up.